Tonight I'd like to talk about creating the conditions for happiness. And I'd like to begin by saying a little bit about some aspect of my own spiritual journey. I thought it was appropriate to say a little bit about when I first came to India because it was very significant for me in my whole scheme of things in my life. <coughs> I had been yearning to come to India a number of years before I actually came, but the conditions didn't arise for that to happen until about 1987 when Christopher first invited me to teach here in Bodhgaya. <coughs> I had been teaching with uh, some other teachers in California and and had also been living in California, and he thought it was time I got out of California. <laughs> and I saw a little bit about the rest, what the rest of the world was like. So I certainly felt um, some anticipation, quite a lot of fear, but also some healthy excitement in coming here. And I remember when I first landed in Delhi and then slowly, slowly getting to Bodhgaya, took about three or four days, and the train ride, just looking out the window at the images unfolding before me, just like being in a movie, something that I'd never seen before in my life. And getting to Bodhgaya, it was much quieter then, not that long ago, but it was surely more quiet. And one of my strongest memories was when Christopher took me to the Mahabodhi temple where the Bodhi tree is. And I was walking down the steps towards the temple, and I just caught a glimpse of the golden Buddha that's inside the temple. And I remember just that image just pierced me. It was like seeing that golden Buddha in Bodhgaya. <coughs> And tears came to my eyes, and I just said, I've waited so long. I've waited so long. Something so deeply was touched inside, coming back to something, touching some root somewhere. And that month, the, the month I was teaching and being here, turned my whole life upside down to the likes that I could have never imagined. And I, it seems that the metaphor of what happened to the Buddha when he left the palace was very similar to what I experienced. Because when the Buddha first left the palace, his protection and comfort, what he saw when he left was an old person, a sick person, a dying person, and a renunciate. And it was almost as if I had never seen that, living in the West and certainly living in California. It was like I had never really seen an old person or a dying person or a sick person. And I never really had seen a renunciate, somebody who's living such a deep spiritual commitment to, lot, to that life. In the culture, in our culture, anything that we don't like, it seems we put behind the walls. We have ghettos and nursing homes and funeral homes. 
homes for the term terminally ill. We have homes for the mentally disturbed. Anything that we don't want to see, we put away. But here, everything's out. So we can't hide these inner responses, these inner feelings that we have towards seeing these things. If something gets moved, something gets stirred. And so when the Buddha went out and saw these things, he knew that he had, there was more that he had to understand. And in the same way, when I was touched by these things, I knew there was more I had to understand. There was more that I had to know about suffering not only my own suffering, but the suffering in the world, because I had been very protected. So I had to leave California, and I left what seemed quite secure and comfortable, I left a marriage, left a community, a, a very strong community of friends, I left financial security. And for the last six years, I've been traveling and teaching and living in different parts of the world. And for the last four years, I've primarily been living out of a, a backpack. Been one of the homeless, <laughs> but I call it voluntary homelessness. It's very different <laughs> than the homelessness we see around. So, it seems that that was a deepening, a beginning of a deepening of my spiritual commitment, a deepening of my understanding of what it means to live a spiritual life. And in reflection, there are a number of factors that stand out, <coughs> characteristics of that spiritual life for me. And I wanted to mention a number of them because they seem to point to creating these conditions for happiness. Things that we have to do in order to find the kind of happiness that we're searching for. One is renunciation. And of course this means different things to different people. And there's lots of ways in, of interpreting this. But for me it just means living simply and knowing deeply in my heart that there isn't anything that I need to be dependent on for my happiness that I can live without. It doesn't mean that I can enjoy the beautiful things and the wonderful things around me, but I, if they're there, that's fine. If they're not there, it's okay. So it's a sense of being able to let go of these things but not that I have to, but know that in my heart I don't need them. So it's an attitude of renunciation. <laughs> Another is to have an attitude of learning and discovery towards what happens in life. Accepting the events of life that come as an offering towards my own awakening not having to struggle and be in conflict with things as they happen, but to see, ah, oh, yeah, this is being presented as a gift, as an offering. <coughs> and how can I meet this and use this so that I can awaken 
and not cause suffering. <coughs> One teacher says, to undertake a genuine spiritual path is not to avoid difficulties, but to learn the art of making mistakes consciously, to bring them to, to, bring them to the transformative power of our heart so that we see there's really no problem with making mistakes. In fact, that word just gets thrown out. We just go ahead and use the challenges of life for, as we say, fertilizer for Bodhi, manure for Bodhi. Another is using this time for healing healing past wounds. Acknowledging the, way that, acknowledging the ways that I feel that I've been hurt and letting go of these resentments, the holding, the contraction. It seems that the letting go of these old hurts and wounds makes the space for healing to happen. And this seems to be a significant part it's forgiving and asking for forgiveness in ways that I've hurt people. And some people do this very consciously. They make a list and they say, I have to work on this, I have to work on this, I have to work on this. Just to really work through those places of holding so that I'm not identified with an image of myself. This, these old wounds don't get caught in this image. And then I project myself to the world as this hurt person, this wounded person. And by letting go of these past hurts, it strengthens my capacity for loving. Not by suppressing or denying or pretending that this isn't there, but by bringing it fully into consciousness and letting it, again, do what it needs to do using it as fertilizer. Another is a time of generosity, of giving, of service, which is quite important because it means we let go of this self and we give over to others. We give time to others. We have to put ourselves aside and say, yes, I can go there. I don't have to be so bound up with what's going on over here. An important one is the time for silence. And it seems that this factor gives support to all the other factors. <coughs> And that's what we're doing here. Sometimes it means taking short periods of silence in our daily lives for meditation, for prayer. Sometimes it means coming to longer retreats like we're doing here. And these are times of renewal, times of reflection, times of looking into all the things that I've just mentioned. Being alone with ourselves, being alone with myself, Sometimes it's just being alone in nature. Nature can give so much nourishment and support to the healing. 
creating these conditions which allow for us to connect to that quiet space inside, that quiet space inside that is there within each of us. But sometimes we need to create the conditions to allow this to come forth, to show itself. A a silence that allows us to open to something other than just this limited mind and body that we think we are. Sometimes the silence of environment, sometimes just the silence of mind and heart. So the most important, maybe the most important factor is this commitment to this quiet space. (coughs) That which is not me, me as I know myself to be. But here is where the language doesn't support so well when we start moving into these kinds of areas, this quiet space. In Buddhism, sometimes this is called Buddha nature. In Christianity, sometimes it's called God or Jesus. Hinduism, the Atman. Advaita, sometimes called the self with a capital S. In the feminine goddess traditions, we call it intuitive wisdom or the wisdom aspect. In the Native American Indian traditions, they call it spirit. Always trying to find some kind of a name for that which is unnameable, undescribable. But we all know that it exists. This is what makes the teaching so difficult because we can't really say, yeah, that's it. So it becomes very hard to talk about this. Letting go into this supports the shift from self to other, something other. The shift away from the self as I know myself to be. And all of these characteristics that I mentioned give support to this letting go of the self, letting go of the ego, of the I, creating the conditions for that to happen. Letting go of that which supports the idea and the identity of I. Letting go. In renunciation, it's letting go of the things and people and situations that might obscure, that might interfere with the aspiration for the highest good. The attitude of learning and discovery. We have to let go of our limitations and move on. We have to acknowledge the truth of who we are and say sometimes, yes, I am an angry person. Yes, I am full of lust. Yes, I do eat so much at lunch that my belly hurts that I want to be sick. (laughs) Acknowledging the truth of this so that we can say yes, we can learn from it and move on. Letting go of these old images, these false images. The healing, letting go of the hurts and the grievances, (coughs) the grievances which might bind our identity. 
And sometimes in order to make room for silence, we have to let go of things that might seem quite important to us and make silence important, more important. We also need to let go of the strong mental patterns in the mind that crowd out this space of silence, that don't, doesn't allow this place to arise, to show itself. In this respect, the spiritual path is very much a path of renunciation, of letting go. And as I said, all these factors give support to the letting go of the self, the I, of the ego. But at the same time, it can seem that all of this can reinforce the idea of I. We can say, I'm doing that, I'm doing this, this is important to me, that's important to me, this is what I want, this is my aspiration. And so in the attempt to do this letting go, we can say, I am doing all of this for myself. And then it can seem like a real paradox. Like all these things are actually reinforcing the very sense of I that I'm wanting to let go of. And I hear this again and again. People get so confused around this issue. <coughs> what does it really mean to let go without reinforcing the sense of I? Really understanding what letting go, letting go is that doesn't reinforce the sense of I. So when we talk about generating or creating these conditions for happiness, we're faced with this paradox. On the one hand, wanting to let go of the I, but on the other hand, not wanting to reinforce the sense of I. I am. I'm doing this. This is important to me. I want this. I need silence. I need to go on a retreat. I can't be with you right now. So we could say, well, I'll just do nothing. I just won't do anything. Maybe if I don't do anything, I won't reinforce the sense of I. And I'll just allow things to happen by themselves. And we'll just see what happens. And I'll just, just be quiet and I won't do anything. But you see, you can't even really talk this way. It's not possible. Some of the teachings that we hear actually seem to give support to this not doing or this non-doing. This by um, a lama. Happiness is, I mean, it's beautiful, but listen closely. <coughs> Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already there in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no importance at all because it has no reality whatsoever. Don't become attached to it. Don't pass judgment. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing anything, and all will vanish and reappear without end. <coughs> And that's true. 
But the teachings get so easily misinterpreted that there's nothing to do. Some teachers have this as their main part of their teaching. You're already free. There's nothing to do. And it's true that people in hearing that may come to some understanding that the freedom is here and now. And then they'll ride on this bliss of that understanding, thinking there's nothing to do, nothing to do, I'm free. But in the meantime, life continues to impinge on the person. The I starts to assert itself again, and suffering comes. And if a person's stuck in the idea that there's nothing to do, nothing to do, they won't understand what's going on. And we've seen people who have had these <clears throat> kinds of teachings who get very stuck in confusion and despair, don't know how to get out of it because they're so sure that they can't go back to their meditation practice or their sadhanas or their communities. So I wonder if it is really that there's nothing to do, or if this just isn't maybe one side of the teaching. Sometimes when people get caught in the not doing, there can be a kind of indifference or a passivity, a dullness, an unhappiness, and not really a knowing why. Something's wrong, but I don't really know why can also feel like a kind of victim to life's events. Things are just happening. Say, well, I'm letting go. You know, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm not asserting the I, but I don't seem to be happy. What's happening? I have a friend who was so afraid of asserting the I that she didn't do anything to help herself for a year. And she just felt so dull and complacent. And after some time, then asked for help. What's wrong? I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I thought I understood the teachings. But I wonder if we're just maybe not creating another comfort zone, thinking, now I've let go of the I. There's nothing to do. There's no risks. There's no challenges. In that, maybe the same habit patterns are just repeating themselves. I don't think this is freedom. I don't think this is really what we're talking about when we talk about the end of the path, the end of suffering. It's equally a problem when the traditions assert great effort when they assert a lot of striving and goals in the practice. And there's much emphasis on the doing. Because in this case, there can be models of how one should be that gets created, how one should practice. This is the only way. Ideals can get set up. People get very much caught up in the comparing mind, the measuring mind. How am I doing? Am I very far along the path? We have to see that each one is an extreme view, the doing or the not doing. And we can see that we can get caught in either one. The path has many, many perils. 
and the mind is very tricky. If we're really, really honest with ourselves, very honest, and we're acknowledging our pain and our limitation, I think it would be very hard to say there's nothing to do unless we feel we want to live in that state of pain and suffering. <coughs> but also, we can't say, really, that there is a lot to do. Because we see, too, how simple it is when we just sit and we be quiet. We're just still in ourselves and everything seems to drop away. So, one of my teachers, Punjji, called this a doing that is an undoing. A doing that is an undoing. And I think this begins to point to what's going on. In the paradox of the I am doing in order to let go of the I, and the only reason we want to let go of the I is because suffering is in the I. And we want to bring an end to the suffering. So in this paradox, I am doing in order to let go of the I, I wonder if this I that we're talking about here maybe has a little different identity. (laughs) This I that is intending for some wholesome change, for some positive change in our lives and the world around us, maybe we could call this I the wisdom factor or awareness or the heart, or intuition, whatever name you might want to call this. I wonder if this I that's asserting itself for some good and wholesomeness in our life isn't the I that we're so concerned with. This wholesome aspect of mind. We use this wholesome aspect of mind to counteract the unwholesome forces in the mind of greed and hatred and delusion. And this is the eye that can see through and bring an end to these destructive forces. And so we use this wholesome aspect of mind. This eye this I, this wisdom I, this is not an independent, self-existing I. It doesn't exist by itself. But this must be interconnected with all things. We can say that I am here and you are there, but is it really so black and white? There is this sense of everything being connected and related. And when we can look in this way, then this I isn't so separate and isolated. And the conditions that are arising, are, these, these conditions arise to bring wholesomeness, 
to bring wisdom, to bring transformation. <coughs> when I talk about the conditions that had to give rise for this talk to happen tonight, I can't say that I am giving this talk all by myself. It's quite obvious that I can only give this talk if you are here listening to this talk, or somebody's here listening to the talk. So I can't, I mean, I could, I could sit here by myself, but it would be very, it would be a very different condition. I also couldn't sit up here giving the talk if I haven't probably had some experience in my background to know something of what I'm talking about. So those conditions that gave rise to this wisdom that's speaking have to be there as well. The conditions of the air, the conditions of the Thai temple of Bodhgaya, all of this gives a sense of the wholeness that we feel this evening. I'm not sitting here independently, but these conditions give rise to the wisdom that's expressing itself right now. So I want to mention about the importance of this intention. The importance of the intention to look into the nature of mind. The importance of the intention to do something to let go of this sense of I. Because without this intention, for example, without the intention to be mindful, without the intention to be present here, what would happen? We didn't hold this intention. These old habits would take over, the habits of greed and hatred and delusion. So the wholesome factor or the wise factor of mind holds the intention for a positive result. So we speak of having the intention, the intention for a positive result. And when we speak of letting go, what we're referring to is letting go of the outcome of that intention. I think this is an important distinction, and this has been a very important distinction for me in my teachings. And that is to see how intention and letting go arise together. Intention and letting go are like two sides of the same coin. So we really can't just have letting go without the intention. We can't have intention without the letting go. They come together. They act together. The intention for something to happen and letting go of the outcome or result of that action. So we're very clear what we're letting go of. In letting go, we're not waiting for things to happen by themselves. If we do that, there can just be this sense of meaninglessness, lack of direction, lack of purpose. We have to take responsibility for our actions. We do have to take some responsibility. But we can't just act out of that extreme either, because if we're just taking responsibility, then we start having thoughts like, I have to make it happen. 
It's my responsibility how things work out. It's all up to me. Or we say, life just isn't going my way and I can't understand it. Why are things so difficult? What am I doing wrong? And then we can have this sense of failure, which can lead to depression and confusion. And then the need to just keep asserting one's will to try to make things happen. And then wonder why things aren't happening the way we want. So instead, we intend for something to happen and we let go of the result. We intend at night to go to sleep, but does sleep come? It's not necessarily up to us whether sleep comes or not. We intend to go and meet somebody, but whether that person shows up or not, we don't know. We have intentions or plans to go somewhere after the retreat, but if we wind up there, (laughs) we don't know. And we can see in our meditations that we have the intention to be mindful, to be present, but are we present? (laughs) And if we judge how we're doing, we judge where we are in our lives based on the outcome, we may just give up, say, it's not working. I hear this, oh, so many times people come in the interviews and they say, I don't know why I'm meditating, it's just not working. (laughs) You know, I'm trying and I'm trying, trying to make this happen and that happen, but it's not working, I should just give up and go home. But what's important, I think it's so necessary to remember what's important. That is our intention. Our intention for something positive to happen in our lives. We can say, yes, I want a better life for myself. I want a better life for my children. I want to live in a peaceful world. And then we can visualize or imagine what conditions will support that coming into being. And then we can take appropriate action. This is wisdom. This is the wisdom speaking. We're not concerned with this I. This is the wisdom acting. If I feel lonely, I can make a commitment that I'm going to spend more time with like-minded people. If I notice that I have repeated painful memories that come and I can't stop them, I might decide to take action to get therapeutic help. If I see that when I eat, I eat too much, I can have a strong intention to change that habit. All this is fine and wholesome, and it's necessary for a healthy and happy life. Not to get stuck in one extreme one extreme of doing or not doing. Our work is very much like fine-tuning a guitar. If the strings are too loose, then we tighten them. If the strings are too tight, then we loosen them, just until we get the right pitch. And then we find that we have to keep adjusting them because they get loose again or they get tight again. A teacher uh, named Manindra, one time when he was giving a talk when I was doing a long retreat in Massachusetts, 
he, he had just been to a circus in America. I think it was his first circus. And at the circus, there was an elephant walking a tightrope. And he came back, and he was so excited, and he said, oh, you know, there was this elephant walking a tightrope. He said, that's just like the mind. <laughs> he said, when it would start leaning a bit to the, to the left, it had to come to the right, and then when it went a little bit to the right, it had to come to the left. And it just walked across the tightrope. Just what we have to do. He was so excited. <laughs> Creating these conditions for happiness to arise. We look and we see very closely with conscious attention that our actions have consequences. And we see that certain thoughts and actions lead to more suffering. You could see it in your meditation. Certain thoughts and actions will lead you down a road to more pain. And you can see that certain thoughts and actions lead to more happiness, lead to more joy. Ending suffering means bringing an end to the conditions which cause suffering. So all we have to do is identify what those conditions are. What are we doing that is bringing about this pain? When we're happy, we're happy. Then we can relax, we can enjoy, we can rest. We could also look to see about see which conditions are bringing about this happiness. And this is how we learn. And we can't do this by sitting back and doing nothing. If we just sit back, the habit patterns of our conditioning are too strong. Some teachers say these forces have gathered over millions of years. If you can believe that or not, sometimes it feels like it. (laughs) So it does require this persistence, vigilance, discipline, It requires a kind of engagement and participation in our lives to bring an end to the suffering. In meditation, when there are repeated thought patterns that come again and again, sometimes you just have to say, no, I'm not going to let this in anymore. We have to be very firm with ourselves. It's like saying no to a child that doesn't seem to get the message. Sometimes you just have to give it a swift, Pat. (laughs) Just say, no, don't want these conditions anymore. Otherwise, we sit back and it just comes and comes and comes and say, why does it keep coming? Why does it keep coming? The same when we see destructive habit patterns like smoking or drinking. Drugs, addiction to food, these are terribly difficult habit patterns to work with. They take quite a lot of discipline and effort. They also take a lot of patience and perseverance and love to work with these. But we see, yes, they're just patterns. 
we see that we're repeatedly reactive to a certain person in our lives. We say, no, I don't want to act that way anymore. I want to bring a change. I want to act differently. In giving this, preparing to give this talk tonight, so many times when my mind said, you're not going to sit there in front of 200 people. (laughs) You can't do that. Why are you even attempting to? Just having to say, no, I'm not listening to that. I'm not listening to that. My intention is to sit in this chair and talk about what I know. What happens, I don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) The outcome I have to let go of. But the intention is to get here and to move Not let that fear that rises, that binds up, limit me, block me, stop me from something that feels important, a direction that I want to take in my life. Having to say no, no, no. I won't let these forces destroy my life. I think that this I want... (coughs) I want or desire really does get a bad rap. (coughs) You know, we say you shouldn't we should get rid of all desire. All this I want should go. I'm not sure. I think this is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And this gets very easily misunderstood. I think we must want happiness. We must want peace and joy, and love in, in ourselves and in the world. We must feel this deep inside of our hearts. And it's the power of this intention for happiness that will bring about the change and transformation that we want. Because this wisdom is already <coughs> present when that intention is there. The wisdom is already <coughs> acting in that moment when the intention is there. It's almost as if nothing even has to happen outside of this intention and the action. Because wisdom is operating. So it's important to keep in perspective what we actually want to bring an end to. And I'm not sure it's bringing an end to desire. I think it's bringing an end to suffering. So I say, hold this basic intention. Hold this intention to discover this happiness. To know it until it fills every bit of your being. (coughs) So that it can fill up so much that nothing else can take hold. Nothing else can take hold in consciousness. I think this is the work at hand. Or I actually prefer to call it play. This is the play of life. <coughs> May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings know the joy of letting go.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.